This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we explore the wondrous, rich, and risky possibilities that arise when we say yes and, not only to each other, but to God. We speak with our guest, Marianne McKibben-Dana, about her new book, God, Improv, and the Art of Living. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the Reverend Marianne McKibben-Dana. She's an author, pastor, and public speaker. Today we're talking about her recent book, God, Improv, and the Art of Living, published in 2018 by William B. Erdman's Press. Her writing has appeared in Time, The Washington Post, Religion Dispatches, Journal for Preachers, and The Christian Century. And for three years, she had a monthly column in Presbyterians Today. She was a guest on Things Not Seen during our 2012 season when she joined us to speak about the book Sabbath in the Suburbs. Dana received the 2016 David Steele Distinguished Writer Award by the Presbyterian Writers Guild for the book. You can find that interview on our website. Marianne McKibben, Dana, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here with you. So there's a lot that I want to talk about in this book. I really found it invigorating and inviting, and I kind of want to dive in. But before I do, I want to ask... Just for the sake of our listeners who maybe have not lived on this planet for any period of time at all, when you use the word improv, what is improv? Improv is short for improvisation, and the kind of improv that I'm really focusing on in the book and that I practice in my own life and in my recreational time is the kind of improv that you might see on Whose Line Is It Anyway? It's improv comedy. Although, as will become apparent as we talk, it's very clear that what I'm after is not about humor or being funny or even making people laugh, although that is often a byproduct of improv, is this sense of joy and amusement. But really, it is a way of being in the world that helps us deal with life when things don't go according to plan. So if we were to draw a distinction between the idea of improvisation or improvisational comedy and theater, what would that contrast be? So when we think about theater, what are we thinking about and how is improv different? Right. I used to, in high school and college, did a lot of theater. And I loved having a script in front of me, learning that text. Of course, I would go on to become a pastor and get immersed in that text. <laughs> but I'm a very, have always been a very text-based person. You learn your lines, you learn where to stand on stage, and sometimes things happen that you weren't expecting. But you basically have a text and a plan that will take you through where you need to go on stage. 
And improv was always consisted of warm-up activities before you'd go out on stage. You'd play some games together just to get people, get yourself kind of loosened up. But it was never anything that I practiced as its own art form. But in recent years, I've really gotten more into that side of performance, which is going out on stage. The kind of improv that I practice is called long-form improv, where you're not playing short games, but you come out and you build scenes together. And you may have a word that inspires you. The audience may throw out a word, and then you just let that word kind of guide you with however many people are on stage together. You build something that you had no idea where it was going to go when you first step out from that back line to to start improvising. So it's very intuitive, it's very creative, and there's no script. You used a term just a moment ago. You said games. Help me understand when we're talking about improvisation, what's a game or why, why are we talking about these in terms of games? Because when I think game, I think like Monopoly or a game of cards. What's a, an improv game? Right. A game might be, for example, if you've seen or familiar with Whose Line Is It Anyway? It's kind of a premise for two or more people to go out on stage together. So a game might be something like props where you come out on stage and somebody hands you pool noodle or an egg beater. And what you do is you come up with all kinds of different uses for it other than as a pool noodle or an egg beater. And the game is kind of the structure in which you work. And one of the things a lot of people don't think about when they think of improv because it seems so freeform and wild and crazy is that there is an underlying structure to it. There are boundaries and unspoken rules that guide what you do together on stage. So just like when you play Monopoly, you have rules and parameters that you work within. The same is true on improv. You may have fewer of those rules, and it may be encouraged to kind of bend or play with those rules, but there's still an underlying structure. And so when people take improv classes or improvise together as a group, they may build scenes together, or they may just play a series of games where they may play props, or they may have other things that they do. And the, the book has all kinds of different activities that people can do together to just kind of loosen up a little bit, build community, and really try this practice of improv in a safe and low-stakes manner. Well, you've used at several points in that response the word structure, and I'm wondering if we could take a step back. And again, just trying to make sure that my listeners are understanding what improvisation is. When we talk about improv, what are some of the structures that we would expect to see? Or if we were to do improv, what are some of the structures that we would expect to follow? The first one and the most important one, and this may be one that even people have picked up along the way because improvisers talk about this, is this basic rule of improv, which is to say yes and. And that is the cardinal rule, no matter where you study or practice improv or play with that art form. The idea behind yes and is that you accept what is offered to you on stage by your scene partner and you build on it. So if you and I are on stage together and you say to me, honey, I want a divorce. I can't argue with you about whether we're married and whether you want a divorce. I have to accept that. And then I build on it by saying, oh, but honey, I really want to work this out. And then we go on from there. 
Yes, and in addition to being the foundation for improv on stage, it also turns out to be a really, for me, a foundational spiritual practice in my own life because things happen in my life that I would not have chosen or that surprised me or that were not a part of my plan. And it is incumbent upon me to receive that. If I can't change it, I need to receive it. And try to find the best and possible, the best response that I can make, given the reality as it's been handed to me. So that's one of the basic foundations of improv is yes and. There are other practices that I talk about more fully in the book. One of the important things is to really, really pay attention. So there's a whole section in the book about cultivating our sense of vision of the world as it is, either when we're on stage playing improvisationally, or just walking around in our lives. Improv requires us to see the world clearly as it is so that we can yes-and it. We can't respond to the world as it is unless we see it as it truly is. And so there's all kinds of guidance in the book about how we really hone our vision and our spiritual discernment to know what's really happening in my life and how can I yes-and that as best I can. So what I'm hearing you saying is that some of the cardinal structures, the first and foremost one is this yes-and concept, and then the second one is to be present in the moment with whoever you're with. Am I hearing that correctly? To, To pay attention. That's exactly right. I was just the other day talking to someone who was caring for an elderly relative who has Alzheimer's, and I was so struck when they were talking about the process of being with that person. They said, you know, You walk in and you have no idea if they may not remember you. They may think you're another family member. They may have all kinds of reactions, and you would never know what you're going to get when you walk in with someone who's who's dealing with that. And so what usually works best is not to argue with them, not to say, I'm not Aunt Gladys, I'm your daughter, but to just receive that and to kind of play along. And it really... You know, they talk about how it really agitates people to try to argue with them and say, no, I'm so-and-so, and just to improvise with that, to say, in order to really be present, I need to participate in your reality as best I can. And I was just so struck that what they were describing in that process was improv. Do you find that people that you talk to about this have some misconceptions about what improvisation is? And if, if so, what are some of those misconceptions? Definitely. I I think one of the things, if you've watched any kind of improv, especially comedy improv, but I think a lot of people look at improv and they think, oh, this is about being funny. This is about cleverness and wittiness. And the way that I want people to think about when I'm talking about improvising your life is not about being clever or witty or even thinking quickly on your feet. Because the principle of yes and really is about discernment. It's about assessing the world as it is, your life as it's presented to you, and what is your response to that? And if you're a person of faith, if you're someone who believes in a higher power, how does God kind of enter into this discernment of, what am I called to do? If I have this relative who has Alzheimer's, you know, that's not something I would have chosen for myself. But what is the best, most life-giving 
response that brings about the most wholeness for everyone involved. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with author, pastor, and speaker Marianne McKibben-Dana. We're discussing her new book, God, Improv, and the Art of Living. We'll be back in a moment. Looking for signs of hope in the Chicagoland education scene? Bright Promise Fund for Urban Christian Education serves 15 schools in Chicago and nearby suburbs with scholarship funding for students and families in search of quality, faith-based educational options. Visit brightpromisefund.org to learn more about schools where students flourish. Good schools make for good neighborhoods. brightpromisefund.org. That's brightpromisefund.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with author, pastor, and speaker, Marianne McKibben-Dana. We're discussing her new book, God, Improv, and the Art of Living. Well, a moment ago, you told us a story about the woman with Alzheimer's. And throughout the book, you tell us stories about both your stories and other people's stories. But I'm wondering, for the sake of our listeners, could you tell us the story of how you came to discover improvisation as a method of engaging with life? Yes, and and that's another way that I have helped, I hope, people see that improv is not just a a matter of performance and being funny on stage, but it goes to the core of who we are as human beings. When I speak to groups and lead retreats around this idea of improvisation as a spiritual practice, there is a lot of unlearning that people need to do, and I go really gently with it to show people that all of us are improvisers in our lives. Even people like me who, I mean, I love a good plan. I'm very organized. I love to kind of, I mean, my backup plans have backup plans, right? And improv is invigorating for me because I realize how much of life doesn't go according to plan. And there are just a great set of tools there to deal with that. Working with groups to help them see, hey, you drive to work and there's traffic on your usual route and you have to find a new way. That's an improvisation. What first opened my eyes to this idea of life as an improvisation was a really serious health crisis that I kind of had a front row seat for. In the church that I used to serve, there was a family where they had two young sons, and the short version of the story is that both of those sons developed the same genetic illness, and both of the boys passed away before their ninth birthday, a couple of years apart. That experience really, as you can imagine, did a number on a lot of us theologically. And thinking about how is God active and at work in the world, and realizing what kind of... There were were many people who I think, in a sincere desire to be helpful, gave very kind of pat and simplistic answers to the family or when they were talking about the the issue. Well, everything happens for a reason. We'll understand the plan someday. There's a purpose in this. Those kinds of answers felt very unsatisfying to me, and they were very unhelpful to the family as well. There are people who are comforted by that kind of theology, but many people that I know and have ministered with in the church are not comforted by that. So what are we left with? Where is God in the midst of these things? And I was so struck as I was walking with this family and I would visit them in the hospital 
and I would see this medical team gather outside the hospital door every morning, doctors, nurses, techs, social workers, and they would bring one another up to date and say, what has happened in the last 24 hours? What do we need to change? What did we think was going to go well that turned out not to go well? How do we need to alter the plan? And what they were doing was improvising. And what they were doing was really centered around, they may not have put it this way, but what I saw was a very clear yes and. Where are we today and how can we find the best healing and the best wholeness possible for this family and for this young boy? And it made such an impression on me and I thought maybe this is how part of the way, maybe this is part of the way that God is present in the midst of these situations, not creating some detailed master plan, but as the author of Yes And, the one who is seeking yes and for us, the the best healing, the best wholeness, the best possible outcome given life as it currently is. And so seeing that example made a huge impression on me. But also, in the wake of both of those deaths, I saw this family who was just determined not to let this be the end of their story. And this family has gone on to adopt a young boy who is from North Carolina, had been in the foster system for many years, and they are providing a loving home for this young man. And for them, it is a testimony of the power of yes and. This is what has happened. They never, ever would have chosen this for themselves. But it is, as the mother would often say, it is what it is. And so how do we find the best and the most life-giving response to this? So it, it really was the medical team, but also the impulse of the family to say, this is not the last word on our story. And so the improv really grew out of there, and I began to think more about how does this really connect with our spiritual lives. And the more I dug and the more I studied and played around with this, the more powerful I think it is for us. Well, and you just said that God has a yes and, and at another point in the book, God, Improv, and the Art of Living, you observe that Jesus's ministry is full of yes. And I'd love to unpack that statement. When you say that Jesus's ministry is full of yes, help us understand what that means. Well, I should start at the end with this story that many of us are preparing for. We're we're talking, you and I, in the season of Lent, and so we are looking towards this great story that we will rehearse and celebrate together in a couple of weeks with the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And that, to me, is the ultimate yes and. The idea that, you know, Jesus could have said no Jesus knew that the powers were after him, and he could have fled and lived in exile. He could have renounced everything that he'd been preaching those few years. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus submitted to death on the cross, but again, that was not the last word either. And I live in the mystery of the resurrection and don't understand fully what is going on in that story and in that act of God, but I do affirm that that is the ultimate yes and, to say that death is not the last word. And that is what I affirm and what I think we affirm in our own ways 
when we say we believe in the risen Christ. We've got to start with the end because that to me is the hinge point. But throughout his ministry, there are just delightful stories of Jesus really responding to things as they occur. And, you know, I don't know if, if Jesus kind of had a plan, but he seems very willing to go off script at various points in his ministry. And I love the story. Uh, just was preaching it a couple of days ago about Jesus, his first sign in the Gospel of John is turning water into wine. And in that story in John 2, he's at a wedding, and they run out of wine, and his mother says, they have no more wine, and he kind of argues with her a little bit. He says, my time has not come. That is not my concern. And she sort of, as, as mothers sometimes do, you know, he tur- she turns to other people and says, you know, do whatever he tells you, which is kind of forcing the issue for Jesus. But then he does. He, you know, has them draw water. The water turns to wine, and there's this wonderful opportunity for this celebration to go on at this wedding. And I love that Jesus in the Gospel of John, his very first sign is a sign that he never planned to make. He never, that wasn't on the agenda. I don't know what was. I don't know if he had something in mind, but he was very clear, my time has not come yet. And something in him shifted and he realized, I can yes and this. You know, it's one of those things, once you start looking for it, you can really see it in all kinds of places that you hadn't seen it before. And so... With Improv on the Brain, I read these stories, this Jesus with the Syrophoenician woman, or sometimes called the Canaanite woman. She comes to him and asks that her daughter would be healed, and he doesn't want to do it. In fact, he insults her and says, we, we don't give food intended for the children to the dogs. And she improvises, and she yes and. She doesn't argue with him. She doesn't say, I'm not a dog. She doesn't slink away in disappointment. She accepts his premise, and she builds on it. She says, ah, yes, but even the dogs get the crumbs under the table. She improvises with him, and then he improvises right back because he yes-ands her and says, oh, you're right, and he acknowledges her request and responds to it with, with the healing of her daughter. And in that moment, his ministry is expanded. It's not just for the people of Israel. It's for all of humanity. And so through the practice of improvising this little scene with her, he grows into a bigger yes and, and his ministry is expanded. What I love about this is I'm also thinking about that passage in John 12, where Mary comes and breaks this huge tub of aromatic spikenard all over his feet and just starts bathing his feet. And and Jesus kind of says, we're going to go with this. <laughs> and, and the what right. interests and what interests me is that the apostles start saying no, and Jesus takes their no and turns it into a yes and even in that moment and says, listen, I'm just going to be with you for a little while. We can live with this. I You're, you're opening up my way of seeing this. I, I'm seeing a lot of yes and possibilities, just as you said, now that we've started to talk about this. This is fantastic. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's really, and you know, I'm a I'm a Presbyterian pastor, and so lurking out there in my mind is also this idea of God's providence, and the idea that God is sort of guiding things, and I don't know what to do with that, with the idea also of a God who improvises. I really see very clearly this testimony in Scripture of a God who is fundamentally collaborative with us, 
And for now, I don't feel the need to reconcile that. I think that God is big enough that we can hold both of those things together, that God is ultimately reliable and is guiding creation in ways that we can't fully appreciate and imagine. And the scriptural testimony is clear that God is willing not to be coercive. God is willing to be in it with us, letting God be acted upon by us. And I find that intriguing, and I don't know what to do with it, and yet I feel like it's very much there in a lot of the biblical witness. So it's been fun to kind of play with all of that. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with author, pastor, and public speaker Marianne McKibben-Dana. We're discussing her new book, God, Improv, and the Art of Living. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with author, pastor, and public speaker, Marianne McKibben-Dana. We're discussing her new book, God, Improv, and the Art of Living. A moment ago, you were saying that you were looking at the concept of providence, and you were comfortable with the ambiguity of God being a collaborator with us in this yes-and moment of living. That really struck me because I'm aware of the tradition that you are coming out of. It's the Presbyterian tradition, which means somewhere way back in the DNA of all of what your training and your theology is, is John Calvin and his notion of predestination. I'm aware of the tension that you're talking about. So this notion that God is providentially providing or the notion that God has somehow predestined some to salvation and some to damnation, that pushes up against and causes some friction with the notion of improvisation. But there are other ways in which, if I'm hearing you correctly, it also might be seen as the kind of structure. Like you were saying before, there are ways of understanding the process of improvisation that are if you see it from the inside, are structured. It's not just anything goes. It has certain guide rails that allow you within the structure to play. Now, I just want to make sure, first of all, as I'm saying all this, am I following correctly? Am I following the right amount of ambiguity and also bringing in the right amount of structure, or have I missed something? I think that's a great way to look at it. I don't get super deep into the weeds theologically in the book, but I have been really helped by folks like Thomas Ord and Peter Olson, I believe, who do work in what they call relational sovereignty. And the idea is that God is sovereign. God is free to do what God wishes to do. God is not bound in God's nature. And at the same time, God is the kind of God that is willing to achieve God's purposes through a certain level of collaboration and relationality. Whether God does this voluntarily or it's just part of God's nature and God can't help but do it because of who God is, God is willing to be acted upon. 
And we have stories in the scripture of God changing God's mind as a result of encounters with humanity. And if for Christians, we know who God is most fully through Jesus Christ, who was fully human, and all of the self-limitation that that entails, then there has to be, I think, I mean, I think there's a lot of wisdom in this idea of relational sovereignty. And what they say in their work, as I understand it, is that God's nature is unchanging. For me, God is a God of yes and. That is always what God is about, is about bringing about the best shalom in any given situation. But the way that God, the particular ways that God goes about that are wildly creative and relational. And so the sort of core doesn't change, but the way that that yes and expresses itself throughout human history is multivalent. And I remember in seminary, one of my seminary professors said, you know, she was talking about the book of Exodus, and she said, you know, this story of the people of God, you know, the, the Hebrew people being brought out of slavery and into the promised land. And she said, remember Exodus, of course, the word Exodus is Greek, and it means a way out. And she said, it doesn't mean the way out. I have never forgotten that. I hope I never do, because to me, it speaks of a God who is infinitely creative, that could have found any of a number of ways to liberate God's people from the bond of slavery, and went with this one, you know, Moses and ten plagues and wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. It was a way out, and that to me is so invigorating to think about what does it mean to worship a God who could have found any number of ways to make that happen, but in God's creativity and in God's willingness to be in the muck with us, this is how it unfolded. Well, for me, too, because I'm loving where you're going with this, and I'm very aware that the phrase that undergirds improvisation, as you pointed out in the beginning of our conversation, is not simply yes, it's yes and. And that puts me in mind, I was very struck in the middle of your book, you began to dig into the second part of that phrase, yes, and. And you use actually that in one of the titles of one of the chapters. You say, embrace the vulnerability of the and. And I'd love to dig into that and talk a little bit more about that, because what you're talking about is this moment of possibility where there's some risk involved, isn't there? Absolutely. Yeah, and I was just rereading that section not long ago and, and realizing, I mean, writing it was also a risk because I believe that's the chapter that I talk about, a time that I was invited to kind of step into a more public role in ministry. I was invited to uh, interview for a job and just really felt all along the way, this is mine to do. I was really, I, I just kind of brought everything I had to it. I just did everything I could to to try to, you know, be the best, put my best self forward. I let people know that this was happening and so I could kind of get some of their help as I was preparing for this interview and for this process. And I think as I put it in the book, I left a Marianne shaped hole in the wall. I was right? just thinking I was that, like, yeah. I'm gonna just go at this <laughs> full bore and I didn't get the job. And, you know, that happens. I mean, that happens to all of us. But it was such an awareness because I had brought so many people into the process and I had really given so much of myself to it that it hurt. 
And so it's important in any kind of discussion about the spiritual life in general, but especially thinking about this improv stuff, is that yes and can sound very chipper, like everything's going to work out okay, and, and it's just a very kind of sunny sort of sentiment unless you offer the other side of that, which is that participating in that yes and matters and sometimes it doesn't work out the way you, you thought it would, and that hurts. And so for people to be ready for that, and also just to say, you know, I, I'm really glad I did that. It hurt, but I wouldn't have done it any other way. It puts me in mind of the phrase, ad astra per aspera, the, we, we get to the stars, but only through struggle. We have to embrace the idea that there's a steepness to what we're trying to do, that these moments are not going to come to us just kind of willfully and naturally, but they're going to involve some effort on our part. And this, is, this brings us back to what you were saying earlier about the importance of being present. We can't be fully there for the risk and ready to take the risk if we're phoning it in. And that's what I'm hearing very strongly in what you're saying. That's great. I, I agree. I think that's right. I, I think one of the things that really has had a big impact on me in my own life as I've studied improv and taken improv classes is how important it is to really, when you do improv, one of the things I tell you is that you, you really want to make big, bold choices. It's okay to, I mean, when, when we're sort of trying to find our way into a scene, sometimes it takes a minute to sort of get our footing, but what really helps your scene partner is if you come in with a really big, bold choice. You kind of come in with a big kind of character or a, a really out there sort of statement that they can respond to rather than kind of a tentative, so how's it going kind of thing. It just gives people something really meaty to latch onto. And that's also what I think makes it invigorating in thinking about a, a practice for living is to really take that risk and to to be bold and to risk failure. There's a couple different chapters in the book dealing with failures and disappointments and how do we deal with those. And one of the great things about improv is the way that different traditions within improv, they handle failure slightly differently, but the upshot is that it's just a thing that happens. I have a friend who is a mental health professional and an improv teacher, and one of her grounding assumptions is she says there are no mistakes, just unsupported actions. And if you think about it, you know, if you're in worship or you're doing something in the kitchen and it doesn't go right. Well, that's a mistake unless you find a way to work with it, right? And I love this idea of celebrating the times when things go wrong and making something beautiful out of them, even if it's just laughing about it and saying, well, that didn't work well. It's such a gracious way of treating ourselves and one another to say, you know what, we did our best. It didn't work out the way we thought it would but we can learn from it or we can do something with it and turn this failed soup into something else. And I just think that's a really a lovely way to be in the world. I'm also aware that what you're encouraging us to do again and again is to cultivate a habit of saying yes, almost to use that 12-step phrase, to live as if or to fake it till we make it. And I'm just interested in diving in a little bit and digging out this notion of yes as a habit as opposed to yes as a way of being. How, how do those two things balance for you? I have a friend 
who is an improv friend and also a pastor, and he was telling me that not too long ago he has a, a couple of young-ish kids, and he decided one day that he was just going to say yes to every request that his son or daughter, I can't remember, was going to, you know, hey, let's do this, let's do this. And we so often reflexively go to no because we're tired or because it's going to be messy or it's going to require effort on our part. And so he just decided, I'm going to cultivate yes today. Now, of course, that has limits. I mean, if the kid wants to go play in traffic, we're, we're not going to say yes to that. But we might try to honor the spirit of what they're wanting to do. So they're wanting to kind of go out and run around. Well, okay, we'll go to a safe place to do that, right? And so what has really helped me as I live more deeply into this, and, and I'm glad you brought that up, because in our lives we practice in small ways, uh, practices such as hospitality or graciousness or mercy in our everyday lives so that when those big pivotal moments come, we're ready for it. And so the habits start small, but over time they have a formational effect on how we are able to respond to those big crux moments that, that happen in our lives. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with author, pastor, and public speaker, Marianne McKibben-Dana. We're discussing her new book, God, Improv, and the Art of Living. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash not seen radio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with author, pastor, and public speaker, Marianne McKibben-Dana. We're discussing her new book, God, Improv, and the Art of Living. Well, something that struck me about the book, God, Improv, and the Art of Living, is that in addition to all this yes and stuff, you also talk about the importance of no. And I just would like to take a moment and talk about the importance of no in all of this. As I was writing the book, I I just became very aware that I was running the risk of making it sound like we needed to go along with things that we really deeply needed to fight against. You know, an example would be, a person who is being abused in their marriage. I didn't want to make it sound like yes and meant you are supposed to submit to that and put up with that. I really felt like it was important to talk about no, and and it led me in all kinds of directions. I thought about the civil rights movement and that so much of that protest really has a kind of sense of holy no to it, to say, this is not acceptable. We will not tolerate this any longer. You know, sitting at a lunch counter or sitting on a bus, boycotting, saying no. And it was interesting. I I talked to a number of people as I was working through these ideas, and some of those conversations made it into the book and others didn't. But I was struck by how so many of them really said, you know, that is a no, but it's a no in service to a larger yes. There's another phrase that you use in the book, and I'll admit it was, it was my favorite phrase in the whole book, and it really spoke to me. It's the phrase, refuse to hoard. 
I really loved that. And I'd just like to take a moment and just dig in and ask, first of all, kind of what does that phrase mean to you? And when you when you used it there in the book, set the context for us, but then let's dig into it. One of the wonderful things about improv that also makes it a challenging thing for a lot of us is that there's no product at the end. There's no script. There's no painting. You think about other art forms. I mean, you can record an improv performance, but there's no tangible thing that is created. It is an experience. And to me, that mirrors life itself, which, you know, ultimately we we can reflect on our past and we can plan for the future, but ultimately our life is lived here in the present. And so thinking about this idea of hoarding, sometimes we want to kind of save things for later rather than saying what needs to be said. We wait for the time to be more right for us to have that hard conversation. And so for me, refusing to hoard means a lot of different things, but it, but what's really at the core of it is that all we have is this moment. And so uh, if we feel that impulse to, to act, we should do it right now and not, you know, I, um, my tradition and the Presbyterian tradition, we have the uh, huge perennial joke is that we do everything decently and in order, which is a quote from, I think, Second Corinthians. And it's true. We, we love to plan. We like our strategic processes and all of that sort of thing. And, and I'm not saying we get rid of those, but I, I do think that we use those kinds of discernment processes as a way not to act because we want to have it all figured out before we act. And so refusing to hoard, to me, means just go with this moment right now and don't worry. You know, if we believe in a a God who provides for us, I think of that creatively. I put everything I possibly could into this book, and of course a lot of it got edited out, but I don't want to save that. I want to put it all in there and trust that, you know, if I've got a third book in me, that God will help seeing what that might be, but act now, do it, and and trust that there is enough. It, it strikes me that what is undergirding the entirety of what you're saying about God providing in the moment of your your play partner in improvisation providing in the moment, this is a fundamentally hopeful activity. And I'm just, as, as a way of sort of bringing us to the close of the conversation, I'm very curious you know, obviously life has frustrations, life has setbacks. We've talked about some of them in this conversation. What is it right now, Marianne McKibben-Dana, that is keeping you hopeful day to day? I think that for a lot of people right now, and for me too, it just feels like a really chaotic culture that we're living in. And it's interesting because I hear, I don't want to get too into the weeds politically, but a lot of people talk about Trump as an improvisational, he's, he's sort of improvising. And and I, I bristle against that because I think, for me, improv is such a, a kind of hopeful and collaborative kind of thing. I think I would probably describe his style as more anarchic than improvisational. But it's true that he doesn't go by a script and talking points, and I think that's what made him really appealing to a lot of people is that he he wasn't sort of focus grouped within an inch of his life like politicians often are. That said, I think that what I see is a lot of people who who feel like the world is, is sort of a chaotic and contentious place, and yet people are more engaged 
uh, with one another, uh, you know, sort of politically and, and philosophically. There's just a lot of engagement. And I, I see that as a yes and. You know, this is the world as it is. And if we don't like the way the world is, then it's up to us. There's no, nobody else is coming. <laughs> There's no Superman flying in and making it all right. And, and as we think about what it means to be engaged in our communities, I think that improv has a lot to teach us because there is, we haven't talked about this too much, but the idea of taking small steps, making small moves, the right, you know, I, I heard an interview um, with DeRay McKesson, who is a you know, community organizer, and people were asking him, how do I, what's the most important issue to get involved in? What is the most important thing I can do? What is the, the highest impact that I can have? And he says, the thing that you need to do is what you want to do and what you feel like you can do right now. Don't overthink this. <laughs> you know, if it's having a conversation with a family member or writing a letter to a, an official and telling them how you feel about something, you know, don't feel like you have to take it all on. You do what is yours to do right where you are and start there. And you take that small step. And in taking that small step, it'll lead you to the next step and the one after that. And that to me is very liberating. I don't need to have it all figured out, but I can take this next step and see where that leads me. Well, Marianne McKibben, Dana, when you spoke to us several years ago about Sabbath in the suburbs, I was inspired by that conversation in that book. I'm invigorated by this conversation. I loved the new book, God, Improv, and the Art of Living. And I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. I had a great time. We've been speaking today with Reverend Marianne McKibben Dana. She's an author, pastor, and public speaker. And today we've been talking about her recent book, God, Improv, and the Art of Living, published in 2018 by William B. Erdman's Press. Her writing has appeared in Time, The Washington Post, Religion Dispatches, Journal for Preachers, and The Christian Century. And for three years, she had a monthly column in Presbyterians Today. She was a guest on Things Not Seen during our 2012 season when she joined us to speak about the book Sabbath in the Suburbs. Dana received the 2016 David Steele Distinguished Writer Award by the Presbyterian Writers Guild for the book. You can find that interview on our website. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. It's made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.